Hi, Northerners. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Northern Blood podcast. Listener discretion is advised. and welcome to episode two of the Northern Blood Podcast. Um, today I'm telling the story of Ian and Nancy Blackburn, which um, unfortunately have a tie uh, to a dear friend of mine, and that was her aunt and uncle. Um, she's originally from Toronto, and so she sent me this story um, and kind of asked if I would tell it. Um, and so it is honestly my pleasure to tell their story. I hope you guys will join me for the entire episode, and I know this is going to be a tough story to tell, but David Snow is known to be one of Canada's worst serial killers, not known by body count, but the severity of his crimes instead. So um, so without further ado, I'm going to tell their story. Um, so it takes place in uh, Toronto, uh, and so I'm actually going to pull up an article here. Um, that is actually from the star Um, and to kind of give some background on the article it is from um, detective inspector Jim Hutchinson uh, and this article is uh, kind of based from April 1992 so it says in April 1992 I received a call from detective inspector Jim Hutchinson asking for my help with a homicide case he was working on in Calden Now, these two had known each other for a number of years, having met when they did some undercover projects with each other um, back when one of them was corporal in the London Drug Enforcement Section. Um, And they had chatted about training and types of cases that were appropriate for unknown offender profiling. Uh, He says that he was anxious for me to take a look at the case as soon as I could. He says, Hutch, and this is what we're going to be calling uh, Detective Inspector Jim Hutchinson. He says, Hutch was working jointly with the Toronto Homicide Squad and asked that I meet him the next day at the scene of the crime. An hour's drive north of Toronto, Calden is a predominantly rural area, boasting beautiful lakeside homes, sprawling country estates, and quaint hobby farms. The property owned by Ian and Nancy Blackburn was just off of a main regional highway on a quiet side road with farm fields and pockets of forests all around. The Blackburns owned an upscale home on a quiet residential street in downtown Toronto, but their Kelton property consisted of small, unpretentious, white clapboard houses built with overtop, an original log building with a wraparound porch. It was tucked at a short distance from the road among a small grove of maple elm pine trees and an adjacent apple orchard. An unusual octagon-shaped barn built in 1890 was situated a few hundred meters atop a small knoll overlooking the farmhouse. There was no grand gated entrance with electronic entry at this farm property, just a simple wooden gate secured with the length of a chain and a padlock. Ian Blackbird's sister, Susan, and her husband, Orville Osborne, also owned a home in Toronto as well as the property next door to them. These two 50-acre properties were willed to them by their father so they and their families could enjoy their own weekend retreats. 
The Blackburns and the Osburns had heard media reports in recent weeks regarding area homes vacant during the winter being broken into because you see this, this is a predominantly vacationed area. Um, a lot of the Toronto area, um, they have these beautiful lakeside cottages. That's what par partly what Toronto is known for. Um, and those are literally where people will leave like at the end of June and just go until the beginning of September. They'll spend their entire summers at these beautiful properties. So it appeared that the person responsible for these break and enters squatted at the properties for some time as well. He actually became known as the house hermit. So some pornographic magazines were left behind in these residences, as well as some other evidence that was very strange. Packages of human feces wrapped neatly in paper or plastic bags and urine collected in large plastic juice bottles. That is disgusting. Most of the locations didn't have any indoor plumbing operating in the winter because they're not there. There's no reason for it. But keeping the human waste over a period of time was very bizarre behavior. There were also pages and pages of what appeared to be lists of wartime planes, naval ships, submarines, and weaponry, all written out by hand. On one occasion, a couple checking in on their cottage were confronted at gunpoint by a man and forced to drive him to Toronto. During the drive to the city, the man told them that he was wanted on an outstanding fraud charge. He wanted them to take him to Toronto, to his residence there, but at a busy downtown intersection, when the husband stopped the car abruptly, he literally got out. So a few weeks later, another vacation home in Calden was being checked on by some friends of the owner. They were initially confronted at gunpoint by the man who then fled. He was similar in description to the man from the previous kidnapping case. On Tuesday, April 7th, 1992, Ian Blackburn, who was 54, decided to take some time off of his real estate business he had in Toronto and drive up to spend the day at his farm. Ian was not seen at the farm, but several area residents, including his sister, his brother-in-law, patrolling OPP officer, did see his Cadillac parked in the farmhouse that day. Nancy Blackburn, who was 49, was a public health nurse who often worked in the Toronto area schools and volunteered at a homeless shelter. The Blackburns didn't have any children. They rarely frequented their farmhouse in the winter as Nancy suffered from lupus, which made it super difficult for her to be at the farm in the colder weather. But every spring, Nancy braved the weather to finally attend Ian's family annual sugaring off party to enjoy the maple syrup made from their shared maple bush. It was actually not uncommon for Ian to come up early, check on the property and get it ready for Nancy's arrival. Later that afternoon, back in Toronto, Nancy came home from work and was surprised Ian wasn't home. She called some friends trying to relocate him, expressed concern. Police would later retrieve telephone information that a three minute phone call was made at 7.36 p.m. that night from the Blackburns farmhouse in Calden to their Toronto home. Nancy did not show up to work the next day. The Osbournes had a key to the Blackburns farmhouse and when they didn't see or hear any of that from either of them for several days, they went in to have a look around. They found nothing amiss. They were two garment bags neatly placed on the bed in the downstairs bedroom. When Ian and Nancy didn't attend the annual party on the weekend, the Osbournes contacted their other relatives and friends and co-workers and wondered if anybody had heard from them. No one had. On Monday, April 13th, the Osbournes called their son in Toronto and he went to the Blackburns' home to see if there was any sign of them or anything inside the house that would indicate where they'd gone. Nancy's Chevrolet was parked in the driveway. Mail, newspapers were all piled up outside the front door. Inside, everything seemed normal except he noticed his aunt's purse was left open on her bed. He called his father to report back. 
Orville Osborne then called the local OPP detachment and he reported them missing. At his father's request, the young man returned again that evening to see if the Blackburn's cat was in the residence. It was thought that if their cat was still there, that they hadn't anticipated being away for very long. When he re-entered the home, he found the cat in the basement, and it apparently hadn't been tended to for some time because it had no water or food in its bowls. Then he decided to check inside his aunt's car parked in the driveway with a spare set of keys he found. He noticed there was a tissue on the front seat that appeared to have blood on it. When he went in to check the trunk, he made a horrific discovery. Ian and Nancy's bodies were inside that trunk. Finding out the couple had been reported missing in Calden, the OPP's criminal investigations branch was contacted by Toronto and Hutch assigned. By the time Hutch called, the initial 48 hours had come and gone and he was convinced that he had a whodunit on his hands. Family members and friends had been cleared of any suspicion. No persons of interest in the investigation had been identified. One of the many advantages of being an OPP rather than an FBI profiler is that many of the cases are allowed to have the ability to travel to the crime scene while it's still being under the authority of a search warrant. That was rarely possible for the FBI given the geographic area they cover and the size of their caseloads. It was important that they waited until all the forensic scene examinations were completed so that they didn't contaminate the scene or the evidence in any way. TV shows portray profilers walking through crime scenes, picking up evidence to take a closer look as far as reality is concerned. Try walking into a real crime scene and being processed by a forensic identification team, taking photographs and seizing evidence, you'd get escorted out by the scruff of the neck. Reviewing crime scene photographs was a vital step in the process of this analysis, but the ability to see everything firsthand was the best. They always took the time to look around the area, get a sense of the community in which the crime occurred. In this case, they drove up to the Calden area early so they could drive around the side roads and see them some of the local towns. Hutch was waiting for him at the farmhouse, and when they arrived firsthand, they looked at the back of the house where it appeared a window had been pried open with some kind of tool like a screwdriver. Since the farmhouse had already been processed by the identification team, they were able to go through it. Inside, they pointed out that the window in the bedroom was possibly the entry point by the offender. He had also showed that there was tiny smears of blood at the top set of his stairs, leading to a loft area, and in the dining room area, there was a trapdoor leading down to the basement. Although any forensic evidence was, important, was obviously important, their primary interest was to observe any indications of behavior that occurred within the scene. In this case, what drew their attention wasn't what they were seeing, it was that the house didn't indicate any type of altercation or commotion. There wasn't any furniture knocked over or broken that would have shown a struggle. Everything was neat and tidy. Everything seemed to be in its place. Except for the two minute areas of blood on the floor, there was no evidence of any potential violence. They went back outside, walked around the property, even took a look outside in the barn, but there was nothing out of the ordinary there either. They were working closely with the homicide squad and met with some of the team. Sunday afternoon at the Blackburn's Toronto home again. There was no evidence of any significant altercation or violence inside the neat and tidy residence either. Although Nancy's vehicle had already been removed from the scene for examination, they looked at the driver's seat thinking it would have given an indication of the stature of the last driver, but apparently the seat was in a further back position than what Nancy would have been sitting in. So they knew there wouldn't be anybody in their office on Sunday evening, so they went there and just sat at their desk and tried to reconstruct it all in their mind. 
They were married for almost 25 years and they were described as a loving and devoted couple with not an enemy in the world. Their two homes were located in low crime areas. They didn't appear to have anything in their background or in their current lifestyle that escalated their risk of becoming victims. They had many friends and no known enemies. The only issue is that they were possibly maybe a victim of a break and enter like all these other homes that had been broken into in the area but it couldn't be ignored. They were low-risk victims. It was impossible to know with any certainty where the Blackburns first encountered their killer. Although they didn't know who made the phone call to Toronto from the farm, it seemed that most likely it was Nancy who was trying to see where Ian was. Unlike in the TV shows, there are very little information in these types of cases and reconstruction efforts are gonna lack some clarity. There was a lot of blurriness in this one, but what was most important was that Ian went up alone and Nancy, for some unknown reason, was brought up to join him. The bad guy must have wanted her there. It seemed that this crime had more to do about Nancy than Ian. The test results came back from the two blood droplets from the house that hadn't come back yet. It was just a hunch, but they were betting that the blood would be Nancy's. They picked up the phone, they talked to a profiler with the RCMP at home. Two days later, they sat down and looked at the photographs from the Blackburn's two residences and their autopsies. They had a copy of the forensic pathologist report, including the findings and the comments. They reviewed the reports and went through the photos and then they exchanged them. And over the next few hours, they kind of created a profile. Nancy's new body was located farthest inside the trunk of the car. The autopsy report noted that she had small cuts on her scalp over her left ear, which could have been expected to have been produced at least some blood. There appeared to be blunt force trauma injuries and significant bruising all over her body. Ligature marks were found on her ankles, her wrists, her neck, and her mouth. The latter was consistent with a gag. The ligature on her neck likely caused hemorrhages in her eyelids and eyes resulting from ruptured capillaries. When Nancy's body was examined internally, the pathologist found deep bruising in her shoulder joints. In his opinion, her hands and feet had been bound together behind her back and then tied together. With Nancy's fragile health, with such tight bindings obviously applied while she was still alive, would have been very, very painful. There was no forensic indication that Nancy had been sexually assaulted. However, this didn't necessarily mean that an assault hadn't occurred. There was no indication that Nancy had been sexually assaulted. However, this didn't necessarily mean that that was the case. Uh, Nancy's death cause was asphyxia by ligature strangulation. Ian was fully clothed during his autopsy. His wallet was found in the back of his pocket of his pants, similar to his wife's wallet found in their Toronto home. It contained his personal identification, his credit cards, no cash. Ian had blunt force injuries to his neck, his ligature marks on his right wrist, over his thighs, above his knees, he, was, he too had hemorrhages on his eyelids resulting from ruptured capillaries and indicative of asphyxia. There was dry blood around his nose and bruising on his lower lip consistent with a blow or a contact with a hard surface. There was a cluster of round symmetrical bruises on the right side of Ian's face. It looked like the face had been repeatedly stamped, quote unquote, with considerable force. The pathologist's opinion was that that was the shape and size of the bruises consistent with the muzzle of a gun. The pathologist's opinion as to what Ian's death was, was asphyxia, but the possibility of ligature or man manual strangulation or even a bag being placed over his head was a possibility. Given the post-mortem lividity, settling of the blood and the tissues in the body after death, in their bodies, it was the doctor's opinion that both had been placed in the trunk after they died. 
Neither their ligatures nor Nancy's clothing were found in the trunk of the vehicle or anywhere in the farmhouse or their Toronto home. Given Nancy's health, her injuries, and the bindings applied, the pain she suffered would have been more than that of her husband. The forensic testing results of the minute droplets of blood from the farmhouse were now known to be consistent with Nancy's blood. That indicated Nancy was in the farmhouse at some point and her scalp injury likely caused the, caused the blood droplets. In consideration of all this information, Nancy was the primary victim. The main motive for these crimes were sexual and they would have been committed by a male offender, hence Nancy. Age is never an easy opinion to give because the behavior a criminal exhibits tend based more on emotional and mental maturity rather than age. Crimes of intrapersonal violence are usually committed by someone in the same age range as the victims. In this case, it was lower to 35 to 45 years of age because of the physical requirements of some parts of the crimes, such as placing the bodies in the trunk. If he was outside that range, he would be older rather than younger given the maturity of the crime, meaning it was well executed, there was very little physical evidence left behind, although there was nothing indicative of a second person being involved in this crime. The scenes in Calden and Toronto reflected an offender who had immediate control of his victims. He was patient with whatever ruse was used to get Nancy to come to the farmhouse. He was neat, he left little evidence behind, seemingly cautious, and a planner. He was definitely what was described as an organized offender. The farm was remote and isolated, but the Calden area would be this guy's comfort zone. He was knowledgeable, he was comfortable, he knew that he could stay in the Blackbird's home for some time, so he may have known them, or known of them. They may or may not have known him. There would be some connection between them, but only one could speculate what it might be. With the bruising pattern on Ian's cheek consistent with the muzzle of a gun, a firearm was the way the offender controlled his victims. Given the whole way this crime went down, along with their training, the knowledge of the FBI and other research, they agreed that it was seeming this offender would likely be asocial but functional. But the other traits consistent with this personality would follow. He would be uncomfortable around people, but would interact when necessary or in his best interest. He would be seen by others as quiet and reserved, and likely seen by some as eccentric. He probably had a poor self-image. His personal hygiene and the way he dressed would have been average to below average. He seemed the type that would have worked with his hands, but was likely unemployed at the time. He certainly didn't appear to be commuting anywhere to work. He would have had to have had a criminal record, but likely minor offenses like this break and enter. This guy had the time to plan, develop and execute this crime, and didn't appear to be accountable to anyone else. Therefore, he was likely single, although he may have been married in the past. If he was married, his wife would have considered by him to be inferior to him, whether it was mentally or physically. She was likely to have been more of a mother figure than a wife. He must have been pretty determined in his intentions because he significantly raised his risk of being caught when he took Ian and Nancy to Toronto. He didn't use his car, or so perhaps he didn't even own one. If he did own one, it would have been just basic transportation, nothing fancy. It seemed more likely that he didn't own a car and maybe didn't even have a driver's license. They agreed that the sexual sadism seemed the strongest component in this crime. In this case, when searchers located a bag of garbage in a ditch about 100 meters away from the farm. Inside was an empty can of beer, the same kind that was found in the Blackburns farmhouse, as well as several sections out of a Toronto newspaper, dated December 27, 1991. The same old newspaper had been found at the farmhouse, missing the same sections. The pages of the newspaper found in the bag were wrapped around human excrement, similar to what was found in the break and enters. 
There were also numerous pages of meticulously neat military equipment lists, similar to those seized in the other incidents. There was now a strong link between the farmhouse homicides and the break and enters and the kidnapping that all occurred in the areas. They'd been able to lift fingerprints from some of the cottage break and enters. However, there was no match to any known criminal when police searched Avis. We still didn't know who he was, but we did know that the quote-unquote house hermit was a strong suspect in the murders. The abduction victims' descriptions of the personality traits exhibited by their kidnapper were also consistent with those provided in the unknown offender profile in the Blackburn case. They were confident of two things. This was their guy and he was going to kill again if they did not catch him. A few months after the Blackburn murders, the police in North Vancouver actually arrested Mr. David Snow. He was about 37 at the time, originally from Orangeville, Ontario, near Calden. Uh, the RCMP arrested him in North Vancouver following a dramatic weekend-long manhunt in a forested mountain park. They charged him with 30 criminal counts, including attempted murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault relating to a series of violent attacks on women in Vancouver. They began in June of that year. The Ontario police, meanwhile, wanted to speak to Snow about the Caledonia area cases. They also had a warrant for Snow's arrest in connection with the March 18th abduction of an elderly Toronto couple and wanted to question him about the other incident in which two couples were threatened by a gunman at a cottage less than 16 kilometers from the farmhouse where the Blackburns were murdered. The barefoot, unshaven, and handcuffed man walked into the North Vancouver police office and he fit the description. He had strong body odor, rotting teeth, foul breath. According to police, Snow deserted his Orangeville home earlier that year, lived in abandoned buildings in Calden as far as they could tell. Uh, close to Peterborough, which is 150 kilometers to the east of Calden. They also said that Snow was armed and potentially suicidal, and a description that some of his neighbors and acquaintances found it difficult to accept. One of his neighbors actually said, I still have a hard time believing it. I used to cut the lawn for him sometimes. We were good neighbors. But they actually were able to link him to another case. In October, Carolyn Case was a 47-year-old Toronto merchant, a mother of three. She'd vanished shortly after a telephone conversation with her youngest daughter. The next day, they found her in a blood-spattered 1990 Mercedes-Benz station wagon. It was in a ditch near a place called the Devil's Pulpit Golf Club, close to Calden, about 45 kilometers northwest of Toronto. There had been no trace of the missing woman. The police say that she was almost certainly the victim of foul play. Then in April, the bodies of two other Torontonians. And so everything was connected back to the Blackburn murders and to David Snow. And when he walked into the police office, they literally couldn't believe what he looked like. The North Vancouver arrest followed a two-day manhunt involving more than 40 police officers with infrared scanners, helicopters, search dogs, began after a man abducted a 19-year-old woman on July 11th. Later that day, police found her and another young woman who had disappeared nine days earlier tied up in Mount Seymour Park. The search ended for at about 4 a.m. the next day after a man forced a woman into a restaurant, triggering a silent alarm. The police then said Snow had arrived in Vancouver in mid-April and had been living under bridges and in the dense bushes of Mount Seymour Park. After three court hearings that week, the BC court ordered a preliminary hearing on the charges against Snow to begin on August 24th. 
They also imposed a publication ban on information disclosed during court proceedings and on any information that might lead to the identification of the Vancouver area victims. And while visiting, Ontario police officers who were granted only a brief interview with him that week continued their investigations, residents in Snow's hometown of Orangeville remained stunned by the recent turn of events. Those who knew him say that the balding, unbespeckled Snow had always been a quite polite man who kept himself unmarried. He lived alone in the family home where he grew up with his two brothers and sisters displaying a long-held passion for antiques and other collectibles. Snow spent much of his spare time scouring auction sales and flea markets. He ran a local shop, Simply Timeless Antiques, that went out of business that year. More recently, he found work reshingling the roof of an Orangeville's train station. Snow has been diagnosed with a tractor-trailer load of disorders, including paraphilia, sexual sadism, preoccupation with anal intercourse, erectile dysfunction, antisocial personality, and narcissistic personality disorder. He is a mess. Uh, and he was in 1997, he was sentenced to life in prison with no parole eligibility for 25 years. He was convicted of a, the double homicide, first degree double homicide. Um, and now in 2019, he actually was applying for parole. According to the banner, Snow's bid for freedom was shot down by the Parole Board of Canada in 2019. It ruled the prospect of Snow being back on the streets would pose an undue risk to society if released. You are only beginning to develop insight into much of the sexual and violent components of your offending, the Parole Board decision stated. You have made gains by coming to terms with your unhealthy relationship to pornography, but this insight is relatively new. It continued. Your understanding of your deviant sexual thoughts remains in its infancy. As horrific as these crimes are, as sad as it is that all of these people lost their lives to David Snow, they can rest peacefully knowing he will not get out of jail. He is now 65 years old. He was arrested when he was 37 and parole still after that many years sees him as a huge risk to society. So I hope you guys enjoyed this case, learning about this crazed person and learning a little bit about the Blackburns who, like I said at the beginning of the episode, were relatives of a great friend of mine. And so I hope I did a justice of telling the story. And today is actually the 28 year anniversary of their death. So I wanted to record this episode on this specific day to share this story, to share it for the Blackburns, knowing that they are in peace, knowing that he will never, ever, ever get out of jail. So until next time, Northerners, stay safe. Thank you so much for listening. Every case I talk about is so important and deserves the attention. If you could kindly share this podcast with your friends, that would be amazing. If this is the first time you're listening to Northern Blood, thank you. I would love for you to go give our show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now stay safe.